welcome to Rebuilders. My name is Liddy and I'm here with Mark. How are you going in the bubble room, Mark? Good. I, I've had another, I must confess, I've had another networked pastry. So that I'm powered by almond croissants. Almond croissants delivered by the network. Yes. Yeah. in... The exclusion zone. <laughs> <laughs> we have to. This, this is it. We're locked down. This is everything we're talking about. We're locked down, we're limited, but we can still order pastries. We can't go more than five kilometres, but a pastry app has delivered pastries for us. Just to be clear, the app isn't exclusively for pastry delivery. It's good old Uber Eats, which is um, a non-sponsored plug. So last week we were exploring the notion of uh, the networked age destabilizing power and changing the nature of power and I asked the question at the end I mean is is this the reason that our world has gone mad and that 2020 just maybe needs to jump in the bin for a bit yeah absolutely short answer (laughs) Um, okay we'll just wrap it up there (laughs) yeah I said thank you I'll eat my pastry um (laughs) I mean, you go back to the beginning of the year. I have a memory early on this year going to dinner with my wife, Trudy, not far from here, and um, it just being just filled with acrid smoke mm. and you couldn't see more than sort of 100 metres in front of you. And, and weirdly, there were people wearing masks, but they were wearing masks not for COVID-19, they were wearing masks for the bushfires that had been happening on the eastern coast of Australia. Un, un, you know, incredible scope, you know, mm. and millions of, you know, animals killed and and hectares burnt and you know really what the story of that is is that's about the network it's about how small things Mm -hmm. in a network change that a small couple of changes in temperature um, can have incredible effects yeah that what a factory is doing in norway can have an effect in what's happening in australia and um i'm not blaming the norwegians (laughs) we have some norwegian (laughs) listeners i'm not blaming you um but yeah like carbon emissions and you know all this can affect this this network that we call um planet earth and creation yes and um you know so that was front and center um for us in australia it felt like that was gonna be the defining thing of the year and the environment i remember the extinction you know melbourne was shut down by extinction rebellion you know, protests. Yes. Um, I was in London and, and London last year was shut down, you know, at different points um, over these protests. So it felt like this is the year of Greta Thunberg, remember her? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, um, it felt like this global movement. But then we had the assassination or shooting or killing or droning of Qasem Soleimani, yep. the Iranian general who ran a network of proxy armies for Iran across the Middle East, which, you know, was destabilizing that region Mm -hmm. um, and then was droned. Again, you think about that, like this technological autonomous, not autonomous, but, you know, remote control thing, you know, shooting this guy, someone pressing a button in, I don't know where they shoot him, Langley or something in the US and this guy in Baghdad gets, you know, taken out at the airport. Um, And we thought we were going to go to World War III. You know, with yeah. Iran and and you know, would Russia and all this get dragged into it? Um, and then COVID nineteen happens, um, and that's the big disruption. And then you know, you're into that, and then you know, the video of George Floyd, and you see yeah. protests, and and you know, today you know, we're seeing uh, protests in in Lebanon after the blast there, and the entire government's you know um, resigned, and in Belarus and. You know, all around the world and all of this is disruptive elements and when you dig deep into them, they're all connected to the idea of networks. Yeah, okay. And so, you know, realistically, you know, networks are disruptive environments 
Ulrich Beck um, was a German sociologist, and he he went against the I guess the thought of the day uh, at the end of the eighties and the beginning of the nineties that the world was going to move to this much more peaceful environment. And he wrote a book called Risk Society, and he talked about the fact that the modern world would increase risk. You know, and I saw an article I think it was in Foreign Policy, you know, last week, as you know, proclaiming Ulrich, you know, Beck as the sort of philosopher of the age now. You yeah. Know? And I think there was something that he was really onto that the more that we advance, the greater the risks are. And he saw globalization and the environment as increasing risks in the world. And so, in many ways, really. Um, you know, you're 100% right. Networks and that big change is behind why the world feels more chaotic. Okay, well then why does a networked world then lead to more instability? Essentially because more diverse connections create more disruptions. Okay. You know, a more diverse network can be a rich and exciting place, but it's also a more chaotic environment. There's a quote from Randall Schweller. <coughs> Excuse me while I cough. Just have to, it's funny, you feel like now you've got to like, that was water in my throat. I'm not sick in case you're concerned. <laughs> that's that's the reality. Um, Glad that, you're in your bubble room. Yeah, I'm in my bubble room. Uh, Randall Schweller wrote a book magnificently titled Maxwell's Demon and the Golden Apple. Great which, title. Which is actually about a globalized world. And he says this, the world is undergoing transformation, a chaotic period where most anything can happen and little can be predicted where yesterday's rule takers become tomorrow's rule makers, but no one follows rules anymore, where competing global visions collide with each other and where remnants of the past, present and future coexist simultaneously. And you know, really what he's getting at there is that in a networked world, everything is closer from cheap deals on sneakers, but also bad international actors are closer, mm-hmm. international terrorist groups, viruses, Fringe, extreme, political, dangerous ideologies are all closer. The other thing that's also going on in a networked world is that as countries rub up against each other, as ideologies, as competing interests rub up against each other, they engage in a war, but it's a different war than we understand. We're used to the idea of kinetic war, as they call it, which is shooting stuff at each other. That's Mm -hmm. how we understand war. Um, But John Boyd, the American uh, military strategist, he talked about four forms of war, economic, information, moral, and kinetic, which is shooting stuff at each other. Um, Moral is, you know, you see that clearly in the Vietnam War. Again, America had the advantage in terms of money and military power. You had that famous photo of that young girl running from her village, which had been bombed um, by American uh, uh, aircraft and she'd been burnt by napalm. She'd, mm. Clothes had been burnt off her. And, you know, people talk about the fact that, you know, that was one of those moments where it was like America began to lose the war. They didn't lose it militarily at that point. They lost it morally. Yeah. So what's really interesting is that as the world has become more interconnected, um, the chances of kinetic war drop. So the Cold War, which was the dividing of the war between yeah. two great industrial powers – you know, you had the Eastern Bloc, Soviet Union, China, um, Warsaw Pact, and then you had the you know the Western Bloc called itself the Free World, and really it was like an industrial institutional battle between these centralized powers who could outlast each other. Yeah, and you know the West won that because it sort of you know outlasted the other in terms of industry. But where we are now is that clear dividing line between those two. You know, the Cold War was between 
there was, you know, Winston Churchill talked about an iron curtain dividing those two. There wasn't yeah. people hardly travelled between the two. There wasn't a lot of trade, but now we're so intertwined. So that fear we had during the Cold War of like someone could press the button at any moment. You know, yeah. troops could pour over into West Germany from the Eastern Bloc. Um, that sort of disappears. Whereas, you know, now everything's close, everything's intertwined. So what we have is we have those four types of war, economic, information, moral, and kinetic, all but kinetic are happening. Yeah. The US and China are in what we're calling a trade war. There is economic war happening in the world. There is definitely an information war. Everything from government meddling in in elections to online disinformation to fake news to bots to trolling. All of this is is information war. And then there's moral war. We see that everywhere. The culture wars, and there's more than just the American war, you know, culture war. There's culture wars all across the world. Yeah, definitely. Um, They are moral wars. Um, So as kinetic war lessens as a viable option, those three other forms become more prevalent and that contributes to a more chaotic and competitive global network culture. So um, if I'm grasping what you're saying is that a networked world is more complex. It's a yes. more complex world and in a more complex world, it's far more chaotic. Yes. It's harder to pin down what's going on. It's difficult to understand what's actually happening. Yes, absolutely. So another way to understand this is the complexity. Um, we're experiencing a massive complexification of the world. Um, the first stage of globalization, which we talked about, almost that American stage, you could call it the age of diversity, mm-hmm. you know, and that's with such a catchphrase, you know, diversity, you know, and we saw that that in the institutional industrial age, that often singular groups yep. of people then dominated, and you know, we've looked at a way how societies can be more equitable, you know, we've seen you know women, different ethnicities, different cultural groups become more included in the workforce, socially, culturally, politically. Um, but what's really interesting is in, in the second stage of globalization, that becomes more fragmented because mm. you're not just dealing with here's a bunch of, say, British people, um, both men and women, different ethnicities. All of a sudden you've got Mongolians. You've got people from South Ossetia. You've got different political things. Um, you move from what Stephen Vertok called it, the move from diversity to super diversity. Okay. Um, you know, and Jan Blanhardt talked about this idea that super diversity is driven by two things, globalization and the internet. And he said that actually what's really interesting is one of the great questions and critical theory asked this and modern sociology is like, who is the other? How do we treat the other well? Yes. Um, what Jan Blomhardt talked about was actually in super diversity, it becomes complex to know who even is the other. Yeah, well, it was really clear during um, the Cold War who yes. the other was. Exactly. But now, yeah, it, who it's, is the other? Exactly. So these 
big block concepts that we have to use to describe people. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and American life does this in particular. And so part of that's the racial heritage of, you know, black, white, Latino, Asian. Mm. Um, but then you look at the complexity of just Asian cultures in the United States, from Hmong people to Koreans to different types of Koreans. And, you know, you know, the world is increasingly complex. But then you've also got the other driver that the internet just drives fragmentation. Um, that the nature of the internet is to enable what were once disparate groups to come together and even to create new meaning and new tribes. You know, the rise of, you know, really almost new religious movements, things like online, even conspiracy groups like QAnon. QAnon has become this international phenomenon, which even as people running on political candidates, these are all kinds of things which didn't exist five or six years ago. Um, so you have these new political movements, new gender identities, new sexual identities, new um, nationalist and ethnic identities all continually being driving. And it's like the internet's like a machine that's spewing out more and more identities. Mm-hmm. So the idea of managing them all under a banner of diversity and inclusion where you can include everyone becomes an increasingly difficult um, task. And so then this super diverse uh, culture then even changes media. I mean, you think about media. Um, we talked about mass media in the industrial age, yeah, yeah. where you know, uh, you know, going back to the war in Vietnam, there was this moment where the American um, broadcaster uh, Walter Cronkite, um, who famously also announced the death of JFK, mm. and you know, he went to Vietnam and gave this broadcast and said, "As I look at it, the war in this country is unwinnable." And you know the stories of the White House at that point knew that actually the war was over. Yeah. Again, moral war was lost at that point because he carried such moral, um, I guess, authority. But you look now, you've got cable news endlessly spinning out, spinning out opinions. You've got multiple different cable newses. You've got all kinds of internet sites. So we've actually moved from a mass media where you can communicate to the public yes. to now this super diverse, um, incredibly fragmented and fractious media environment where there is no public anymore it's really hard to get a message to everyone you know even i know here in our state in the state of victoria just the government trying to i heard a couple you know government ministers talk about how hard it is to communicate covid messaging Mm. to everyone because everyone's on different platforms and you know i think they're putting ads on tiktok and stuff like this (laughs) you know Um, but also in different languages in weibo and you know all these different platforms Um, so what that very diverse media spaces become is also a place of increasingly competing media narratives. And uh, um, Marshall McLuhan, the media theorist, the Canadian media theorist, you know, he talked about that once information went to a certain level, that actually people would almost, what he called, look to the old mythic patterns to understand them. So in many ways, we're moving from part of the reason we've moved to like people call it post-truth age uh-huh. is also we're also moving to an age where emotions and stories mean more than truth did in the industrial institutional era. So if that's the case and there's this shift has resulted in all of these competing narratives and competing uh, power sources, is everything just a competition now yeah that's a great point so it's it's almost now less about control as it is competition okay again going back to the industrial age the great fear of the industrial age and you look at a book like 1984 Mm. by george orwell was the fear that 
power would be so centralized in totalitarian governments that humans' individual freedom would be completely ran over. Um, you know, and so much critical theory, which, you know, so, you know, I guess a topic of conversation at the moment, really people like Marcuse and um, Foucault, they were concerned about, um, you know, people being caught in this system of discipline and control. Mm-hmm. Um, but really this much more flattened, competitive, competing arena is actually more about, yeah, that intense competition where individual workers are competing with each other. Someone puts a photo up on Instagram and, you know, mums are competing with each (laughs) other, you know, about how fantastic the picture looks or whatever. So the danger with the industrial age was the rise of a hierarchical institutions which centralised everything under an intense system of control. But in a networked world, the problem is in which power is decentralised and flattened and the problem is intense competition. And that competition is made more fractious by the fact that all you have to do in a network in many ways is attack the network. (laughs) So you think about like an individual going up against an institution was almost a David versus Goliath. You know, you don't beat City Hall, you know, is an old saying. Uh, John Robb in his book on um, sort of terrorism and globalization and networks uh, called Brave New War, he gives the example that um, terrorists learn to attack the network. So, for example, the 9-11 bomb, uh, 9/11 um, terrorists, mm. they attacked America by using the transport system of America and, and box cutters. Yeah. Um, he talks about, in fact, that you know, then that caused the Iraq war and then America went in and rebuilt these massive pipelines for oil to uh-huh. rebuild the Iraqi infrastructure, which is the network, uh, and they spent millions and millions of dollars building these pipelines. And what would happen is jihadists and insurgents would just watch them, sit there, let them build it, let them build the network and then just rock up in a Toyota pickup truck and, you know, with a $1,000 explosive and blow this multi-million dollar thing up. So they just had to keep attacking the network. For what purpose? To disrupt. Yeah, okay. Because you just have to disrupt the infrastructure um, to hamper something. So in a sense, okay. it's almost like the power shift now is, you know, you can – the power shift is in the hands of people who want to disrupt institutions. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think we mentioned in one of the previous episodes that five organized people can attack a big brand now. And brands yeah. are absolutely um, so aware of this. You know, I've talked to people who, you know, are doing accounts and brand managers and just how acutely they are aware of not offending anyone because mm-hmm. one bad news, you know, in a p- world which is brought up on public relations, you get a backlash, you know, or you see people now online are so careful about what they say because they know that you can be cancelled really quickly. Someone goes to some tweet you wrote when you were 16, you know, and you're gone as yeah. a celebrity. Um, so this compa- there's, there's also just one other quick thing. There's, a, there's also a form of competition happening in the world, which is like one of the ways that you control a network is through controlling the operating system of the network. So... You know, you think about like there's the battle between, you know, PC and Microsoft and Apple. Mm -hmm. In some ways, the same thing's happening in the world. In America, you've got this, uh, the world is networked. So what's the moral operating system that we're going to run on? You know, in America, Mm -hmm. you've got this sort of emergent now sort of almost right-wing libertarian thing. Hey, man, we should be able to do what we want, have complete freedom. And then you've got, you know, they call it the woke sort of left. You know, here's, you shouldn't be able to say that. Really, what they're about is competing moral visions. Yeah, okay. Um, and what is the network going to run on? What's acceptable to say and do? What can you push back on? What can you not push back on? 
We see the same thing in the international realm, the battles over TikTok at the moment. Mm. Um, we see the same thing like the new Top Gun movie where uh, Tom Cruise's character in the first movie done in the 80s had a flight jacket that he would wear and had like a, a few flags on it and mm-hmm. one of them was a Taiwanese flag and a Japanese flag. Yeah. In Top Gun 2, which is I think is um, funded by Tencent, the Chinese corporation, um, they have removed the Taiwanese flag hmm. and the Japanese flag and that's really about political correctness for China, what should be said. So a lot of the competition and cultural wars are really over a competing of what are moral uh, networks. And we might maybe talk about that a bit more because I think there's a really interesting stuff to pull out of that yeah, um, in a future episode. With this in mind, I guess, um, what does what does that mean for leaders and churches? If we're if there are all this if there's all this moral competition, um, competing narratives going on, what's what's our place in it? I think there's just a couple of things. I think the first thing is a lot of leaders, and particularly I think leaders perhaps under forty, um, were raised at the that period where the promise of a disruption-free world was at play. Yeah. That hang on, if something's going wrong and it feels bad, there's actually something wrong and there's something wrong even with me. Yeah. And that actually we can just keep everyone happy. So in a sense, you know, the, it was almost like the beginning, there was almost this belief that we could transition from the institutional industrial world into a wonderful, happy, globalized world where everyone holds hands and has a Coke. So all of a sudden now to be in this really fractious world, to be afraid of what you say um, and that life is just going to be comfortable. And you know, I've often talked about there's the prosperity gospel mm-hmm. and there's the prosperity gospel which is explicit, which is, hey, donate 10% to you know me and you'll get a hundredfold back and you'll receive a Lamborghini or something like that. But then there's this implicit prosperity gospel, which is never that overtly said, mm. but if you do A, B, C and D, you're going to live this really happy, non-disrupted life. Yeah. Now, this is not biblical. It's not even connects with reality. Um, that we need to move towards a more resilience-based discipleship model which understands that disruption is normative but understands that disruption is the opportunity for renewal. Wow. That when we are disrupted and we come to the end of ourselves and the plans seem in the dust on the ground, that actually that's an opportunity to push back into God. Mm. And so crisis, again, uh, precedes renewal. The second thing I was going to say is that we have to recognize that in an age where it's really easy to attack the network, to blow up the pipeline, (laughs) um, (laughs) that people in ministry are actually in the business of building. Um, Yeah. And we do have a class. Like I think the the prophetic is always, you know, I'm a big believer in the prophetic and, Mm. and, you know, I believe that God has a heart for justice and righteousness. Um, We also have a really blurred line sometimes between the prophetic and punditry. 
And we do live in a time where you can create a platform in the Christian world yep. of critique and instead of you know, having stones thrown at you, as in other pages of history, uh, that actually you can get platform and even publishing deals. Yeah. And that actually, you know, it's much harder to build. It's hard to build a church at this time. It's hard to build a discipleship community. It's hard to build a, a Christian NGO. It's hard to lead a Christian school at this time. Um, that, you know, actually, you know, the kingdom of God is actually partnering with him and building things. Yes, there are things that need to be dismantled that are, you know, not of the kingdom of God. Yeah. But it's actually difficult. So it's actually going to be uncomfortable. And the consensus model that many churches operated on in the industrial era where let's all just agree here and we can move forward and come up almost with a mass media message that's going to please the masses, uh, that's gone. And that actually really now we're moving into, you know, back to I think a much more biblical time, which is a sorry, more biblical phase, which is actually moving from a consensus model to actually a remnant model. Mm. That really you're not going to be able to please everyone, but who are the people who are hungering after God, who are pressing into God, looking for the, the small? And the good news again is, again, remember in a network, small things have big changes. Yeah. Remnants actually bring renewal to networks. There is so much there that um, many of our listeners are going to, I'm sure, need to reflect on, um, not only personally but for their churches. Uh, next week we are going to return to something you actually mentioned, Mark, in a previous episode that piqued my interest and we'll be looking at how a networked world is undermining radical individualism. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. See you next time.